This is Annabelle Steele, and you're listening to the Hayseed Scholar from Professor Brent Steele. You may call him Doctor, I just call him Dad. Here's my Uncle Kyle to introduce the show. Recording in studios from Utah to the UK and anywhere in between, you never know where Professor Brent Jameson Steele will be dropping knowledge and bringing you the best guest the universe has to offer. This is the Hayseed Scholar with Mr. Worldwide, my brother, Dr. Brent Jameson Steele. I like that one. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Hayseed Scholar Podcast. I'm Brent Steele. Thanks so much for listening. Today's conversation and episode is with Professor Patricia Owens of the University of Oxford, a world-renowned scholar, someone whose work has influenced mine for almost two decades now. I would imagine many of you are familiar with Professor Owens's work. She was also uh, one of the editors-in-chief of the European Journal of International Relations. She is also currently pursuing a Leverhulme-funded project on women and the history of international thought. That project is something that we talk about at the very end. It is producing all kinds of fantastic Uh, outputs, if you will, not just publications, although especially those, but also some other manifestations of this sort of recovery project looking at and rewriting uh, necessarily so the history and the historiography of international thought and especially international relations uh, during especially the early 20th century. So we talk about that at the end, but we start off talking about her growing up in uh, London Uh, the child of two Irish immigrants who both emigrated from Ireland, uh, especially during uh, the conflicts there, during the Troubles. And uh, Irish Catholicism was something that, as she mentions, shaped her not necessarily religiously, but definitely culturally and politically. And so the conflict in Northern Ireland was something that was always in the background of her growing up, uh, her experiences growing up and then, um, you know, being in England, but also being Irish Catholic, going to a Catholic school until she was 16. She talks about that experience before getting a scholarship to be able to go to a private school on the outskirts of London in the suburbs. So she talks about that transition, the decision to go to the University of Bristol, the uni where she pursued her undergraduate degrees. Uh, but also during that period of time, in uh, 1995 to 1996, she had a study abroad opportunity, one of many either study abroad or visiting opportunities that she pursued in the U.S. Academy. So she started to come into contact with and become a little bit more familiar with the structure of U.S. Inst- institutions of higher education, including universities. So we talk about her time at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill during that study abroad. And how fascinating it was for her because she also talks about how uh, growing up she was very into football and playing football. Uh, and so seeing U.S. women's sports, including the soccer team at UNC Chapel Hill, practice uh, and seeing them in person and seeing the, the level of talent that was there uh, really was an eye-opener for her. And so that gets us into a, a discussion on Title IX and women's sports and, of course, women's football as well, which is very um, a hot-button issue right now um, because of the European 
competition that's going on right now, uh, the women's uh, competition, women's football, which is generating a lot of interest. I'm watching it uh, when I can. My daughter's watching it when she can. And so that was a fun sort of background or discussion that we had off and on uh, throughout this conversation. She talks about her decisions to go and pursue uh, graduate work, how she came into contact with and started uh, to become interested in Hannah Arendt's work. That also started with her time at UNC Chapel Hill and was something that her fascination with, her interest in, her the influences of Hannah Arendt's work on hers was something that, that was very important but evolved over time. And so she talks about that and she, she has a little bit of a reflection on why she thinks she was so fascinated with Hannah Arendt, uh, and then also before becoming later on a little bit more critical of Arendt, uh, and especially her, her views on race uh, and, and racism. So we talk about all of that, some of the visiting positions that she had at Princeton, at UC Berkeley, and then a postdoc position at the University of Southern California that are all kind of bracketing her graduate work at uh, Aber, uh, the University of Bearswith. Um, in Wales, uh, the E.H. Carr Scholarship that she got uh, to pursue her studies there, working with Ken Booth and some of the other influences on uh, her work and the pursuit of her thesis, which was a, a kind of a, re- a Rentian reading, as she calls it, of humanitarian intervention. And, um, and then we talk about her going on the market and uh, the first few positions that she got at Oxford uh, and then at Queen Mary, University of London, and then as a reader and then a professor at the University of Sussex. At Sussex, she was there for nine years. That was also the period of time in which she was editor of uh, the European Journal of International Relations. Um, and then in 2020, and ever since, she's been at the University of Oxford. We talk about the Women in the History of International Thought Project and what, that, what brought that about. And we talk about um, her... Uh, the ways in which she decompresses, the ways in which she approaches writing, and um, how those have changed over the years. And so it was a really fun, enjoyable, thought-provoking conversation, as I knew it would be. Professor, uh, Professor uh, Owens's work has influenced mine, uh, like I said, for almost two decades now. We especially talk about her work on a rent that influenced my research and my teaching uh, when, it was, when I was especially at the University of Kansas. And so I was very grateful for Professor Owens' time, uh, considering all that she has going on, all of the responsibilities and commitments and research and teaching that she is doing. So I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Professor Owens. It was an honor to be able to speak with her. And so this is Professor Patricia Owens on the Hayseed Scholar Podcast. Cheers. Well, Professor Patricia Owens, welcome to the Hayseed Scholar Podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. Yeah, this is great. This is such an honor. And thanks so much. I know how busy you are. Uh, so it's great that we get uh, we get to have a little bit of your time today. Um, so you've mentioned in a, a previous interview, the, the EIR interview, that your parents moved from Ireland uh, to England. Does that mean you were born in England or were you born in Ireland and moved over? No, I was born in in South London, in in Greenwich, in in South London, uh, uh, to to Irish immigrant parents, um, and that's where I grew up. What was that like? 
Uh, it was good. I mean, I went to, uh, you know, my, my dad was from the north and my mum from the south. So we went to Catholic state schools uh, till I was 16. So, you know, that was that meant that you had more of a class mix when you went to Catholic schools in, in, in England. Uh, and in London, in South London, it meant there was a bit more of a kind of racial mix as well. Um, so, you know, being a Catholic school in England is a bit better than the sort of bog standard comprehensive you know, state schools that, uh, you know, we, many working class families went to. Um, the first two, two te- head teachers at my schools were, were nuns. Um, and I had one or two like nuns as teachers who I loved. Actually, my favorite teacher was a geography teacher who was a nun. Um, but it was a bit weird with these women of great authority in the school. And then suddenly they would become fawning <laughs> to the priests <laughs> who would then sort of show up. So that was sort of a bit, that may have been formative in somehow my intellectual development. Um, but we were practicing Catholics, um, but that was more cultural and political than religious in, in that context. I mean, we grew up, you know, in, in London during the troubles. So this was, it was, it was quite political. I'll talk maybe, maybe talk more a bit a little, little bit about that later because I think it really that really had a huge impact I think on my intellectual formation. Um, I went to that Catholic school so I was sixteen. And then I got um, a scholarship to go to a private girls' school. We moved out of London a little bit towards more like the suburbs, and um, so that was obviously a little bit more middle, well, a lot more middle class and less 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 racially di- diverse. Um, yeah. Oh, and I was really, into, I was really thinking about this in this period. I was really, really into football at that time. Last night I was watching, or two nights ago, I watched some of the Euros, um, women's Euros, football Euros here, which is a big, you know, the European competition. And saying to them, you know, when I, I played football for my primary school, my secondary school, uh, I played for a Crystal Palace ladies team. I played for my uh, Bristol University, Cambridge University. And there, the idea that there would be, tens tens of thousands even potentially hundreds of thousands of people cheering on in packed stadiums watching women play football was 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 unbelievable and I was quite emotional because I really was into into that when I was young and I remember my uh, coach at Crystal Palace ladies saying don't go to university you could play for England um, which of course was ridiculous because (laughs) there was no money in the game you know that was basically a sort of life of you know, training and then like, you know, working jobs on the side just to sort of make a living. So that was, uh, there was no money in women's sports back then. We never had Title IX. So that was maybe the path not taken. If I had come up now, I may have been drawn to this sort of fabulous life of like international women's football, but um, that wasn't to be. Well, and so, because <laughs> I have a lot, I have a lot of sports fans here in the United States that listen to this podcast, believe it or not. And, um, but they don't like when I try to explain to them how sports are organized elsewhere, like here, you you play for your school, you play for your, your, so it does sound like they, there were either club teams or uni or school teams that you played on, or was it more that you just played like in private organizations or whatever. How I guess how was it structured? How would it have been structured back then? Uh, you played for, your, for women. Yeah, yeah, you played for schools, and then you could play for a sort of youth or then club team or a youth team for a club. So Crystal Palace was the South London team closest to where we lived. I mean, like we grew up as Arsenal supporters, and 
that was in North London and I would have loved to have played for them, but that was too much to, I mean, I, that would have been a massive commute and journey and I could not have got my parents to buy into that. So we, I played for Crystal Palace um, ladies <laughs> team. And then you could go, I mean, then you, there would be college teams, but you know, not in the same way you have in the US where you have people who would get, get scholarships to study and be the sort of, you know, college team and then take classes on the side we didn't have any we didn't have any of that um which you know for better or for worse we, yeah so so you know there was and then I suppose that was the beginning of the there being slightly more not professional because at that point and this is the mid-90s I don't think there was a professional women's league that was coming a little bit later I might be wrong but that that you know there was just not really I was not aware of it that was never offered up. It was just something you would then just play for these teams because for the love of the sport. And then, you know, I'm, I, I don't know what these women were doing for kind of jobs on the side, but they were just, they, they did not get paid and they didn't have sponsorship because nobody was watching them. Well, I mean, here in the States, uh, I mean, I, I, some might disagree because the, the world cup was in the United States in 94, the men's world cup, but um, the women's teams, uh, didn't seem to be on the radar until probably in the late nineties. And then they kind of overshadowed, they really have overshadowed the men's team, uh, yeah. ever since, um, just for, for a variety of reasons, there's, you know, socio-political reasons why. Yeah. I mean, they were brilliant. I remember, I mean, I'll come to, to talk about this a little bit later, but I it wasn't going to, I wasn't going to mention this, but, um, when I, I had a year as a sophomore, an exchange student in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, when I, I was going to say, so you, you, I, your CV yeah. is littered with um, or, or or speckled with like these trips back over to the yeah, United yeah, yeah. States. Yeah. yeah, hugely formative. So I went, but I went to my first of these was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I didn't realize at the time. Well, let me say, so I thought, well, I, you know, I go make some new friends. I'll like show up to the women's soccer training or like watch a match first and you know and I'll sort of show them my amazing goalkeeping skills that was my position and so I went to this match and you know I heard oh yeah like Chapel Hill North Carolina that's like the best college women's soccer team in the country so it's like great and I showed up and watched the first match and I was like okay I would be lucky if I was a ball girl they were out of this world I mean I really was just this moment when I realized the difference in you know like they were just world class and we was just sort of messing around <laughs> and like um <laughs> I was yeah um I mean it was glorious and then and 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 humbling and and um the the current England women's England manager is she she played for Chapel, for Chapel Hill North Carolina and just a little bit after that um so uh yeah we didn't have that and that's you know title nine right and that money that decision by reagan to sort of yeah you know what all that means but in the us in the uk context i don't think people realize how much it's just against the law to spend money more money on british on men's sports than it is on women's sports whereas here that's just the norm you know that at school all the way through there's just way more money thrown at, at men's sports um this is this is you know hopefully changing a little bit but yeah, it was wonderful to see those those uh, that Chapel Hill team. <laughs> they did not invite me to play. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, but it's, you know, that's that's also kind of an interesting trajectory in the U.S. as well. I mean, like we just kind of just think, OK, well, this is just whatever, like, like we do with everything in, in the United States. We just think, well, this is just the way it is everywhere. Well, of course, that's not true because of Title IX. Right. So, um, I, I mean, I, I remember going to college in the in the 90s. I, I played college golf. Um, but even then you were seeing the effects of, you know, um, the investments in both, you know, men's and women's sports, um, kind of taking off, uh, which was, which was, was great. Um, did you, uh, were, were you a good student, um, at all of these schools at both the Catholic school and then the, and then the school in the uh, suburbs after you were 16 or 16 onward? Yeah. Or? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was. I was. I was a good student. I used to. <laughs> I loved. I liked to do homework. I, I mean, I like. You know, I was like into it. <laughs> I was a nerd then, then and now. Probably, I was just talking to somebody who just actually just been to the to the game the other night and was asking me what I was doing. I was like, "Oh, I'm a professor of politics," and they just said, "Oh, nerd." Um, so yeah, that was. I was. I was. I was. But I. I mean, we. Yeah, it was just something I was into. My mom said I, I learned to read quite young, and um, but it wasn't. We did not have books really at home. It wasn't really an academic household. Um, the or any. My mom left school at fourteen, and um, so I was the first in my family to go to university. I have some cousins. I have about fifty cousins, and some of them, um, some of them, not most, just a small, a handful of of us, <laughs> of the fifty cousins. So that generation went to university and um, did very well, but. Um, None of my parent, my parents, or my uncles or aunts or grandparents went to university. What so, like growing up in that um, in that environment, uh, were was there was there any discussion about you not going or and, and then the schools that you were going to was it the norm that at least the kids that you were going with were going to go on to college? So like, how did that kind of cross current? Yeah, it's it's that there was no discussion about not going to university. I mean, my mom bless her I mean and there's a sort of slightly tragic story there but um as well she her ambition was that I would um get a job at Marks and Spencer's which is a big department store here I don't know I don't know what the, what the equivalent in the U.S. would be and that I would work my way up to be a manager at this department store and that was her aspiration because that was a sort of you know a good job and uh you know the, the, there was no sense in which you know the aspiration was to be a doctor or a lawyer or any of these sort of traditional, let alone universities. I mean, what were they, right? But um, but it was the sort of yeah, a good a good job in a department store. I suppose that was the aspiration, that aspirational job for her when she was growing up in Ireland and left school at fourteen. I mean, she get yeah. <laughs> so um, so yes, yeah, so moving from getting the scholarship to this private girls' school, I think changed that. So the kids who were coming up in my previous schools, there was a mix of people. Some would have gone to university and some wouldn't. Everybody went to university from this school, private school. And my parents didn't ever hold me back. I mean, you know, they they were happy for me to do it and they were supportive enough. Um, but that was all that all came from the sort of opportunities that came through school and, and education, just the trajectory that 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 that, that we were on. Um, well, and then you mentioned uh, that the the sort of cultural political identity that comes with uh, being Catholic uh, during that period of time and in in England. Um, so was that uh, was that something that was coming up in the context of talking about? Did 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 you and your family talk about politics? Uh, you know, around the quote unquote dinner table or whatever. Was that something that popped up or? 
We, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was sort of in the milieu. I mean, we didn't talk about it at the dinner table, but it was just sort of thrown in here and there. We knew we were, we were growing up. Like my parents would say, we, we, we felt like outsiders and other in, as a sort of Irish family in, in, uh, in England. So even though, you know, my sisters and I grew up with English accents, uh, I certainly felt Irish. I think my, my younger sisters felt that less. I think maybe I had a stronger identification with my, certainly my father when I was young and his trajectory. I mean, he left Northern Ireland. He, he had slightly more of an education and he, he left Ireland in the seventies to get away from the violence and the struggles. I mean, he was, he had a job as a psychiatric nurse in Derry and this is where, you know, a lot of the conflict between, well, the low intensity war between the Irish Republican Army, the IRA and the British state was, um, was being fought. And um, he got made redundant along with all the other Catholics. And, you know, the, he did not want to stay and fight that fight. And he left, like a lot of people left and became a paddy builder in, in England. You know, so he, he just became a sort of labourer. Um, and, you know, would sort of have anti-English jokes. I mean, you know, we were pro-Irish. We were pro I mean, I was, we were an Irish nationalists, Republican household. Um, and, you know, my mum talked about discrimination and signs in pubs, you know, no, no dogs, no blacks, no Irish. Um, they didn't necessarily have solidarity with, um, uh, with, with the black communities, unfortunately, um, as many, you know, unfortunately, many Irish did not have. Um, uh, but but we were political. We, we we felt like we were different, and I think that that certainly I mean it certainly shaped my interest in politics and conflict through university, and I ended up studying politics. And actually, my first my senior thesis was on the um, conflict in Northern Ireland. So um, I, I I'm just thinking about this period of time for me. So I grew up Catholic in the in the U.S. and in in the especially in the Midwest, we had um, we called it CCD, which was the Wednesday night for the public school kids that would go to um, Catholic education like once a week or whatever uh, at our local church. Um, we we actually talked politics quite a bit, but then it was in the context of um, what was happening in Central America. And so like a lot of like we'd have, um, you know, we'd have these these old school Midwestern Catholics that would teach a lot of our classes when we were, you know, in sixth, seventh, uh, eighth grade. And then in high school, every once in a while we get, you know, one of these 30 somethings that had, you know, uh, or 20 somethings that had come back from doing missionary work in Guatemala or El Salvador. Um, and, you know, that so it was that kind of context, Bishop Romero, the theology, that kind of stuff that was clashing with some of the other older generational uh, dynamics uh, of the Midwestern Catholics, but it was definitely political. So, you know, you were picking it up, uh, you know, when, when you'd go on Wednesday night and then your parents would come pick you up and then you'd start talking to them about it, uh, which was interesting. And then, you know, you're paying attention to who's, you know, the, 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 the few groups uh, that are against Reagan, uh, you know, in 84, uh, when, when he otherwise wins a landslide and you, you know, you kind of pick that up a little bit. Um, so that's, that, that was our own, you know, kind of angle in terms of being shaped uh, a yeah. little bit by Catholic identities in the, in the Midwest in the 1980s. Well, how did you, how did you decide on Bristol or how did you decide on which uni, uni you wanted to go to? So it does sound like you were planning to go to uni, but like, how does, how does that decision-making happen um, at the period of time you started in 94, it looks like. So in the early yeah. 90s, you know, it's like a lot of us, we didn't have 
you know, the internet or, um, you know, yeah. to, to look it up. I mean, we, we had something like the internet, but not really. Right. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I wasn't sure whether I was going to study history or politics and I, I, um, this is in, when I was thinking, thinking back about this, I remember making this catastrophic decision when I went to this this um, private school to do my A-levels and I was going to do read politics, history and English. So you read sort of three or four. Back then it was more common to do three A-levels. And um, we, I was given this, and I loved history up to that point, you know, especially 20th century European and international history. That was absolutely fascinating to me and politics. And um, I was given this reading list um, by the by the history teacher and uh, a level and it was just sort of pages and pages and pages of like books on the history of english kings and queens and i thought oh my god like that isn't <laughs> at the time i just thought first i was intimidated by the reading list like nobody had ever given us a reading list like that and and i think that that was one of the earliest times when i felt the sort of uh class background that, 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 that there was there was this insecurity there was this sense of I couldn't really didn't want to go and ask anyone and say what is this what why do why have I just been given this like list of 40 books do I have to read them all and then also this maybe Irish aversion to sort of just reading about English kings and queens and so I dropped history and studied economics which I uh hated but I muddled muddled through and I really just wished at that moment somebody had said uh why don't you stick with history? It's not that bad. And you are actually going to be doing something other than the Kings and Queens after the first term. Um, and so I will often think whether my trajectory would have massively shifted had I, uh, you know, whether I'd end up in a history department now, sort of a politics and IR department, had I, had I not done that or felt that. Um, Bristol had a really good politics department and, you know, we just, I just at that point never considered anything other than going to like a really, you know, a good university, but not Oxbridge. And it was close enough to home. It was two or three hours away. It's a really cool city with a great history. And it was just a good, you know, it was one of the sort of top politics, straight politics degrees. Um, and I loved it. I mean, I did spend a sec my second year, you know, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where I think that's where I really got into IR um, for the first time. Uh, well, can I add, so we'll get to that here in a second, but yeah. the one thing I'm wondering, um, cause you mentioned not there, there's, there's not a lot, especially in the extended family of folks going to, to uni, uh, especially at that time, uh, it sounds like you were, um, you're the oldest sibling in the, in the family mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. So, um, and so was there any apprehension in terms of how to, uh, how to transition into a, a college or university environment? Um, because it looks like, I mean, if, if you look at the CV, it looks like you, you got comfortable very, very quickly, so comfortable that you're ready to go do the study abroad in your second, it's, it looks like probably your second year, yeah. right? So so it looks like you, you know, you you hit it like a duck in water, so, so to speak, but. Um, yeah, I think so. I, yeah, I, I mean, I, you know, I, it was obviously emotional, you know, that I remember, you know, being very emotional when my parents let, dropped me and left and I was in this flat with, in a dorm with the vegetarian women. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, 
and they were lovely and friendly. And I actually, I had, I bought my politics books with me, my politics A-level books with me. And I, and I had like Thatcher's memoir. And I remember one of my friends who became a very good friend of mine, Richard said she came into my room to introduce herself and saw this like Thatcher, the Downing Street years on my bookshelf and was like, oh, and, you know, <laughs> thought that I was like <laughs> not a woman of the left, um, which of course, which not of course, but I am very firmly. Um, and uh, anyway, so, yeah, I think I did. I, yeah, it was okay. I mean, I didn't, there were certain aspects of university life I didn't like. I really hated the, the ball, going to the ball and dressing up. Um, but, you know. There's I a, enjoy- what's a, what's a, there's a ball? A ball. Yeah. Like a university ball. This like is a da- yeah. like a dance or something. Yeah, or yeah, exactly. But it, yeah, it's a kind of brand and everybody dresses in formal, you know, gowns and black tie and all of that. Like I hated that like we we have like prom in our high schools here but you have some, yeah but those were those were something that happened did yeah. they still happen at the university? yeah yeah okay. I mean well the all the Oxford for colleges have a ball like every other year and I oh think I didn't realize it's okay. sort of aspiring to that you know there was a there's a sort of we're, we're wealthy clientele at that university as well you know it's probably like like Penn or in the US or something like that you know right um are you pressured to like does everybody have to go to it or there's peer pressure to go to it not everybody has to go but there's peer peer pressure but I was a joiner so I you know I joined the you know because of course I went I had been playing football so I went and joined the women's football team which was which was good except all the really good sportswomen at Bristol were were you know joined rugby <laughs> because they were from upper class you know they were middle class and that was the sport the middle class sport um like everything in England it's very straight straighted by class so you know football is more more a working class sport so all the the really excellent women athletes were doing rugby and other things rowing <laughs> um and things like that and so it wasn't a very good football team but I kept I mean, I just kept going. They just kept saying, oh, you know, come on. <laughs> we really need, you know, we really need someone to make up the numbers, which is sort of like, oh. <laughs> um, so I did do that. Yeah, so I, I felt okay at university. I loved it. I used to love, I've, until recently, autumn, fall was always my favourite season because, you know, I associate it with, like, scarves and libraries, um, you know, just going and what a life, right? Reading books having opinions about them, meeting friends and talking, you know, what, what's not to love. And I have, I think I haven't left that idea of university. What a well, privilege. I'm also, th- this is the time that I'm an undergrad as well. And I wasn't nearly as um, uh, sort of <laughs> um, intellectually sort of as curious as it sounds like you were uh, uh, e- even then, but, but I still remember that you know, this was when I was really starting to pay attention to international relations in the in the early to mid 1990s. Um, so, was politics uh, even before you went on the study abroad? Were, were you all talking about politics? This would have been, you know, sort of, you know, what when the the Balkans are starting or not starting, but continuing to to be on the radar. Um, you know, some of the other uh, dynamics that are happening, uh, the liberal interventionism, which uh, you know, you you talked quite a bit about uh, in the the early 2000s in in your work uh, when it comes to what humanitarian is or whatever. Were you already, was that already on your radar? Were you talking about it with your fellow students? Not so much, not as an undergraduate. That was a bit later. That was, that was Princeton. I mean, even though it was the mid nineties in the Balkans, there was some of that, it was in class, but I was, I was, I was most interested in still in Northern Ireland and trying to get my head around 
the violent conflict there. And then when the peace process started, I'd lost interest, you know, that Northern Ireland became less interesting. I remember, my, again, when I wanted to write my senior thesis on the North and um, I was assigned somebody who was a specialist in like party politics and wanted me to take that sort of angle. And I was like, ran a mile and tried to exchange supervisors or advisors to get somebody who would be, would be okay to sort of talk about the violence. Um, no, I mean, I was aware, I guess, yeah, the night, you know, those sort of, War in the Balkans, that's right, that was sort of early 90s. I think Kosovo was more, that intervention was more formative for me. And that sort of sense of the kind of, yeah, quote unquote, liberal international, liberal interventionist, so-called humanitarian intervention period uh, was sort of the, the dominant framed from where the way I was thinking not not the framework within which I was thinking but that was the, the discourse and the context within which I was coming up thinking about international relations uh and that was I was in the U.S. then that was I had a gig at Prince so after my undergraduate degree finished at Bristol I went I had a master's degree at Cambridge and then had a pre-doctoral year at Princeton where I took uh classes with the first year political theorists and IR people so I had um I took uh classes with Michael Doyle and George Kateb and Kathleen McNamara and those liberals. Well, Aaron Freeberg was there too, and he became involved in the neocon administration. But it was a it was already quite a liberal internationalist context. And I was very resistant to that. It wasn't really how I was thinking about uh, international relations. I was a bit more critical at that point already, interested in critical theory and Hannah Arendt, who um, was obviously formative a lot, very formative for me early on. So that that completely, almost completely explains, I was going back through some of your earlier work uh, in the last week or so, and that that context right there really does uh, explain for me, right, articulate the context in which um, you're launching into, into these, these great uh, uh, early studies of yours. But I did want to back up real quick and ask you what the was this when you went to um, to Chapel Hill for that study abroad? Was that the first time you had lived in the United States? Had you visited at least the United States before? And so, like, what were your impressions of living in the United States for that for that year? <laughs> that was not, that was the first time I had lived in the United States. I mean, I had been to the United States at all, and flew into New York and got the bus down the, the Greyhound bus down to the south. <laughs> and um, didn't want to live with the international students and insisted on living out with, I didn't want to live, really did not. I was avoiding the Brits as far as I could. I loved it. It was hugely formative for me. I, th I think it's quite common for children of Irish and Scottish immigrants to England to feel, to have a sort of a attachment to the US when they go there, to sort of feel even more at home. Um, I think that's partly the sort of, more greater fluidity of sort of class distinctions and hierarchies but there's also you know just things were easier and um you could just I, I loved the way that the classes were set up you know the coursework system and all of that the way we just even just course packs and I mean you know even just basic things about Everything was easier than in the than in the UK. Like life and work and love and food and wine. And I had a great time. I spent the the, the final the, the last summer of that year. I was a, um, had a great summer 
as a band man, tour manager for a Chapel Hill band. You know, that was a really cool moment, Chapel Hill music scene. They were you, that, you were the tour manager? I was a tour manager for a band. What, um, what was the name of the band? June. They broke up. Uh, like like that. like the movie Dune? Like D-U-N-E? June. No, June. J-U-N-E. Oh, J- June. I'm sorry. Okay. Yes. And their first album was called I Am Beautiful. And they were good. I mean, they were picked, you know. Rob, what um, kind of genre of music were they? In, indie. Indie music. So, oh, okay. so In the mid-90s. So you were a tour yeah. manager for an indie, <laughs> indie band. So that, yeah. Yeah. So we traveled <laughs> up and down the East Coast and they were doing gigs and it was great fun. And um so I, you know, I just loved, I sort of found myself there. How did in, you become the, the tour manager? For well, the- uh, you know, love and, you know, <laughs> you know, yeah, affairs and relationships and trying to stick around in the U.S. for longer than, you know, I was supposed to be going, going back soon. And This sounds like the, the most quintessential, awesome Gen X experience that anybody could, you know, I mean, that just sounds awesome. I never like. I was working at golf courses or something. In the I didn't, <laughs> yeah, I didn't get I was, to do anything like that. That sounds, that sounds like so much fun. Did, t-shirts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did they, yeah. Did they, did they um, tour independently or did they open for like other bands or? They were touring independently promoting the album. They did mm-hmm. open for one or two bands. Okay. I, uh, back then I didn't, I wasn't involved in that. This was, I was doing the the sort of tour of the album. Uh-huh. Um Oh, yeah. that's Sorry, I, I didn't mean to uh, no, no, no. do that intervention, but that just sounds so cool. <laughs> that just sounds so cool. In so, the mid-90s yeah, yeah. in the United States during our music scene. I mean, that's yeah. You know. Then I so I went back to Bristol and then uh went, yeah, back to Princeton again. And then I did another while I was doing my PhD in Aberystwyth, which seemed to make sense then uh in that context and time. Uh, spent a semester, you know, a semester and another summer at UC Berkeley, mm-hmm. um, which was fantastic to do the West Coast. And then as a postdoc, I was at the University of Southern California and then had a year at Harvard. So, you know, I love the, I've, I've really benefited and really like going back and forth, um, you know, just to sort of delay. I mean, we specialize way too soon here. The, the, the doctoral is, you know, project is much shorter and, the time you spend on it is much more limited, the training you get. So I feel like I've had more of a sort of American style journey than the UK one to the extent that I could have done that without getting any of my degrees actually in, in the US. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the sort of, yeah, waiting and delaying and not just sort of writing the PhD quickly out of the MPhil or, the, or, the, or even the undergraduate degree back went back then people were going straight into PhD programs on their undergraduate degree, which is ridiculous. I feel like, you know, if there's, um, it's benefited the work, my work. Mm-hmm. Well, the, it was, um, it was a little slightly less parochial. I mean, you know, as America, the Anglo, Anglo-American world is very parochial, but at least it wasn't just the Anglo that was sort of, <laughs> Right. Um, no. And, and I mean, that was also something when I first came across your work that I really noticed was that there was there, there is this um, this nice hybridization isn't probably the right word, but you can you can tell that there's definitely, you know, a, a British academic trained, uh, you know, core there. But you're also putting it into conversation with a lot of the the isms or whatever that you're also, you know, inevitably rejecting. Um, uh, whereas like in the U S it, it can become too parochial in the sense that you feel like you have to fit into an ism, at least at that period of time. Yeah. 
but that was what was so refreshing about your work. You knew the isms, but then you could kind yeah. of break through. Um, yeah. I, so I, I am curious as to when in the process of um, maybe it was during Bristol or maybe it was when you went to Cambridge for your MPhil. When did you decide you wanted to go into academia? Was that an early decision, even early on, or um, when? When did that? How did that evolve? I think that came quite early in Chapel Hill. I think that I realized that when I, at the same time that I got into IR as a subject, and I'm wondering whether it was even at the same moment that I suddenly got really into Hannah Arendt, which was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina as well. So did, I did had, you have a professor at, at UNC that, that well, that's Arendt right. I, I need to, I, I have been meaning to write to her for years. And so this may be now another impetus to do that. But um, yeah, I took a class in the fall on dem- problems of democratic theory with, with professor Susan Bickford, who is a political theorist. And it wasn't, particularly on a rent, actually. I don't think we even read a rent in that course, but the what happened was, I mean, I loved it. It was a great course. Um, the OJ Simpson trial came down, the verdict came down, and, 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 you know, it was really my first understanding or exposure to the sort of racial politics in the US. So this when, was the fall of 95 then, because yeah, I remember, right. yeah, yeah, I remember running back from my history class to, to see the verdict as well, yeah. Yeah, all the white women in that course thought he was guilty. And all of the African-American students, men and women, thought he was innocent and were celebrating the verdict. And it was, it was sort of, you know, really shocking and an, edu- an, edu- an, an educative moment where I was sort of had to get my head around and understand how that could be. And, you know, now understand completely why that would be the case. Um, so that was amazing. But, um, and so Susan Bickford, you know, led that, led that discussion. Um, and she was, but I, so I loved that. And then she was running this. So then in the spring, she was running this course, uh, this like intense focused course only for seniors and grad students that so she was running uh, with Craig Calhoun, who was then at, at, at Chapel Hill on Hannah Aram. And I was like, oh my God, you know, I really need to take that class and she didn't let me in because I was a sophomore and you know even though I got like an A in her class and this was like outrageous that she rejected me and of course that meant you know this you know I suddenly became absolutely fascinated with 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 Hannah Arendt at that moment when I was sort of out you know not invited into the club of you know people who were going to be and you know that I think an edited book came out of that I mean there was some you know a lot of people working and interested in Arendt at that time and you know that was a serious discussion so it's sort of yeah okay um I, I I belatedly accept my exclusion from it but I think that that had a huge impact on me and I I read all of Arendt's work at that point and I think that then and and I was still but also interested in international relations so these kept these two things going together and I think that that was when I decided that you know this is this is the life for me you know you know she invited us to our, her house and it was just again part of this sort of delight in what it meant to be living in the U.S. after the sort of life (laughs) um, and limitations and sort of you know alienation perhaps in England. So then when you get back to Bristol the it it sounds like it was becoming path dependent then that you were definitely charging towards uh, something like that in academia you'd like to be a professor you'd like yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So how did you decide on like which direction to go in terms of where to get your graduate training and where to? So that was the so that was the year in Prince. I had a this pre-doctoral year in Princeton and where I was taking political theory courses and IR courses. And uh you know, so I this was ni- the 98, 99 that's, uh, that's right. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I was much more interested in sort of critical theory. And that was not really, there were not very many places. I didn't even really know about Minnesota then. I don't know whether I, my GREs, I would, you know, I would have even done and succeeded in getting in, whether they, Bud would, Duval would have had me. Of course, you know, now I would love, I can now in retrospect, I would have loved that, my God. Um, <laughs> you know, when I, you know, when I think about whose work I love coming up, I mean, you know, so much of it came out of Minnesota. Um, and I had had, you know, I'd taken a class as an undergraduate with Eric Herring, who people read Eric, and he was a radical, is a kind of then a kind of radical security studies person. And he had said, you know, he'd done his PhD at this place called Aberystwyth, like what, where, what and where is that? But in the, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, this this was considered, you know, a really exciting place to be doing kind of critical IR. Um, you know, Tarek Bakawi was there. Jenny Edkins was there. You know, Andrew Linklater, Mike Williams, Ian Clark, Ken Booth, you know, go on, on, on. I mean, they, you know, that's just Susie Carruthers, who's a historian, brilliant historian. Um, and, you know, there's many, many more I can mention. And you know, it really played on this kind of first in the world thing. Um, so I was sort of, and they also gave me EH car studentship. So they, you know, you sort of have to go with the money a little bit as well. So this post-positivist moment, right? And it, there was a sort of real intellectual excitement uh, about that place. And so that's where I ended up going. Um, <laughs> and it was great. I had a good time. It was four years. It was a good place to do a PhD. You know, there was not much else to do. It's a small town. Everybody says this, you know, it's a, it's a good place to work and to get work done. And people come through and they stay for a couple of days and you kind of have these sort of good, intense discussions with people passing through. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, two things I would say about that. Play. I mean, I did my PhD with Ken Booth um, and uh and he was a good supervisor. I mean, I was, I never but bought into his or anybody else's sort of school of critical security studies. I mean, I was sort of at that point, I suppose I would have been doing crit- like security study stuff because I was writing on the war in Kosovo. I mean, I was doing, a, it was sort of an Arendtian reading of um, the different publics um, represented, constituted by that in that, in that war. So I had come into the place with very more influenced by a rent. So that meant that I was much less interested in these isms or even, I mean, not even just the realism and liberalism and Marxism, but I'm talking about like post-structuralism and post-colonialism and critical theoryism, you know, like I, that, that was not picking sides and labeling myself was not my priority. I think Arendt helped me do that. I mean, she was, she never set out to found a school of Arendtians and she spoke to and was an, an, an a sort of inspiration for many different intellectual traditions and approaches. And so that was, and she was also, you know, writing great, you know, works of sort of, you know, philosophy and history. 
And so I, I lost that sort of history, the history of rent actually until a little bit later, because I think the point, the second thing I would point, I would recall about the, those days in, in Aberystwyth was the really unjustified intellectual arrogance of the theorists. You know, that it was, this was a sort of theory moment, you know, everybody was high on theory. And I feel embarrassed when I look back at how, you know, the sort of cohort among us who could define self-defined as the theorists, we really thought we were doing the really profound work. And the historians were, you know, I had somebody refer to historians as like the fact brothers. And back, you know, then you actually did have proper historians in IR departments. And we had, you know, there were a handful of historians. And, um, you know, there was a sort of, again, intellectual arrogance that we were doing the profound, you know, th theoretical work. And the historians were, you know, just providing the empirical material for our like deeper ideas. And of course, this is absolutely ridiculous <laughs> and really embarrassing. And, you know, IR theory is sort of remedial and <laughs> really hasn't, nobody outside of IR reads it. And, you know, when you think about the major works of, you know, understanding international relations today, you know, it's, it's historians who, in Britain, certainly, who are writing about international relations in the pages of the London Review of Books, for example. Um, and, you know, the historical turn in IR, the sort of all the, all the, these turns are part of the problem, but the, the, the historical IR is this field, um, which is sort of the, um, one of the exciting fields in IR right now. I mean, you know, it still, it has to, I think, really come to terms with historical method. It cannot just be gross generalizations about the past, <laughs> like, right, that, that, that makes it historical. I think that, you know, taking seriously the sort of importance of primary sources and, um, and, and not sort of just, looking and picking facts and bits of history to sort of you know validate some preconceived theory I think we have to we have to move beyond this mm -hmm. um, so so that's so those were good days I mean I you know I like being in Aberystwyth but I slightly cringe when I look back at aspects of grad school days well so maybe I maybe I should just move along but I actually had like two or three questions about this period of time at, at the very least that that um we're talking about here because I also remember this was Aber also had a I don't know maybe I'm just you know recalling this uh, you know uh, very selectively, but Aber had like a pretty cool website where it showcased you know the scholars that were there and it was kind of action pics. It wasn't just a profile pic yeah. that we have on you know it was kind of action pics of Michael Williams and Tony Erskine and yeah, I mean, like everybody would. That's right. Yeah. And, and, you know, that that becomes important, um, not just for Aber and its own presence within the British Academy, but as IR becomes a much more globalized uh, field um, for those of us that are in the U.S. and are being told <laughs> in our programs, uh, at least some of our programs, maybe not the ones that you intersected with uh, during some of your visiting gigs. But we're being told that there's only one way to do, you know, IR and you have to do it this way and that way. And then you're seeing, you know, the, just just scanning the topics of the articles that uh, are, are coming out of a place like Aber is kind of piquing yeah. our interest. Right. Um, and so so I, I remember this period of time um, fairly well uh, from my little uh, <laughs> um, cavernous um uh, office at the University of Iowa. Uh, but there's a couple of things that are happening. It looks like just, you know, 
uh, just glancing at your CV. One is that it sounds, it looks to me like you're, you're probably presenting papers at conferences. You're building a, a little bit of a network or you're experiencing conferences at least. Two is that your 2003 millennium article hits at this period of time. And that's your first, um, it might not have been your first publication, but it's your first publication in a journal. It looks like, um, and then you're also, it, it looks like getting ready to figure out like which market to go on. And so that's a lot to throw at you. I had three things that I, I'm throwing at you, but you know, what was, what was this period of time like in terms of developing, um, you know, presenting your work at conferences, what were your experiences like there? Where were you doing it? Was it just the insular sort of Bisa of old that you'd go to <laughs> in December. It was always in December and there was always travel issues back then. Yeah. Um, or were you going to ISAs already? Um, and yeah. then and then how did that develop? And then and then I'll after all of these, sorry Patricia, I'm throwing so much at you here. Um, after all these, I'll talk about the Arentian network that you kind of it looks like you kind of were part of fostering uh in yeah. the mid-2000s after after your dissertation or excuse me, after your PhD was defended. The, the, God, I remember when I think back about going to conferences and presenting papers, I was saying this to a graduate student recently, like I was so stupid, like I didn't realize you could just present the same work like more than once. And I just remember, like, it's like, oh, I'm going to give a conference, give a paper at Visa or the ISA. Well, I've already presented that. So I can't, it was weird. Like I had, I felt like I, even though I was surrounded by all these people, I, I didn't have like anybody really mentoring me in the really most basic way. I mean, I did, that's not right. It's not true. I didn't have mentors, but like I didn't, I could have done with certain bits of advice at certain times. I remember that, that 2003 article in Millennium, that was uh, accidents don't just happen. I presented that at the Millennium Conference and it was the first time that um I got, I, got, I got a really nice response to that piece. And it was a piece that was not written out of the dissertation. It was written just, I just had this real desire to write, make that argument I wanted to make about accidents in the context of the Kosovo war and the early, early, early parts of the campaign in Afghanistan. And uh, I kind of just wrote it in a sort of frenzy of like about a month or two in Berkeley. And it had sort of no real relationship to anything else I was working on. And I've noticed that a couple of pieces I've written that are um, that have been received quite well and well cited were, were written that way. Um, yeah, I presented at Visa, <laughs> ISA, uh, you know, just like everybody else, you know, I don't really know what to say about that. I mean, I just sort of did that sort of trajectory you know just did the conferences because we were supposed to at that point were, were um, you even thinking then at all about um not necessarily strategically thinking about where where to present or which conferences to go to but but which academies that you'd like to which markets that were you yeah. like how broad was your market like sort of imagination so to speak in terms of where where oh, you might end up because you're, you're you're definitely like unlike a lot of other CVs I've seen from this period of time you, you're definitely very familiar with the U.S. Academy and yeah. um and it sounds like it had some really great experiences as well um even if some of them were oppositional in the sense of you know you're the the liberal interventionist that you're coming across at at, at Princeton for instance yeah. or whatever right uh, but it's still yeah. shaping some of how how you approach what you're doing 
I was clear then that I that the kind of work I was doing was clear to me and I think to everybody and maybe this wasn't right I mean but that you know if you were doing more critical work and did a, had done your PhD in the UK you were not going to be getting a job in the US um, I didn't apply I never applied for a job in the US I applied for postdoc at USC um, straight out of from Aberystwyth and worked with Hayward Alker and Ann Tickner there in, in 2004 yeah. right in 2003 yeah. 2004 right yeah 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 and over met and met some great people there I mean uh, Laura Schoberg was finishing up her PhD there and Katia Confettini and Lynn Boyd Judson you know there was a great group of people there um and then you know, I just applied for jobs in the UK. I mean, I was actually offered a job in Aberystwyth. I mean, you know, this is not done in the US, but in the UK, quite often people, departments will hire their own PhDs. That was, you know, it was nice to have that offer. I was, the idea was that I would go back after the year at USC, but I didn't, I mean, I, I just felt like I wanted to broaden my horizons and took a five year, applied for a five year gig at Oxford with Hugh Strawn's Changing Character of War program, which was interdisciplinary and brilliant interdisciplinary Leverheim funded program on the Changing Character of War. So I went from my postdoc to that, giving up a permanent position in Aberystwyth, feeling secure enough that, that that would not, you know, that I would be able to get jobs after, you know, jobs after that. And I would, that's where I would write the book. I got some really good advice in the just as I was starting out, the postdoc was like not to write the book of the PhD, but to write write the book you want to write. So I didn't. When I remember, when I reflect now, I think what I wasted. I kind of wasted much of that year at USC. I didn't. I mean, I wrote a few little bits and I wrote a couple of articles, um, but I didn't do much work on the doctoral thesis. I kind of hated it. I hated my doctoral thesis. I thought it was so, I just thought it was crap. And the one chapter, there's only one chapter of it that appeared that is that survived the book version, the first book that my first book on Hannah Arendt. I mean, my just my doctoral thesis wasn't really on Arendt. It was a sort of Arendtian reading of something. And but I so I sort of in a way I'm pleased that I just didn't churn that thesis out into a sort of, you know, not very good book. And I had the I was lucky enough to have just the sort of in that time. In the early 2000s you know the sort of experience of precarity was different and you know there was that you know jen i remember jenny edkins saying she might not remember this now but you know when i was finishing up i was anxious about the job market and she said there are enough jobs for people i asked phds in britain and don't worry you know you, you'll get a job and um and then I mean, just, there was some truth in that you know there were um, you know, it was after the 9-11 attacks, so there were students wanting to take IR, there was the Labour government expanding access to universities, you know, they wanted to increase the number of young people going to university. There were just, there were jobs. Um, so I uh, took this position in, in, in Oxford and, you know, it wasn't very, I didn't have a very high teaching load. Um, and just, you know, it was so stimulating. I mean, there was, you know, we, it was really interdisciplinary. Um, and there was a sense then in that group that it didn't really matter what you were doing, you know, whether it was critical or not, you know, it, did you have something to say? And I felt like I did. And it was, you know, I, I kind of had a much more critical angle, which was welcome because the Iraq war was, was, you know, a disaster. And so, you know, we had Petraeus and generals coming through and, you know, it was, it was a sort of intellectually stimulating political moment of 
this catastrophic campaign and you know people were coming through and we were talking and debating and discussing and this was the context in which I was right working on this rent book um and sort of discovering for the first time really the centrality of war to her thoughts so I could bring together this interest in rent and my interest in war and do it without the kind of baggage of the isms so it was a sort of it was a kind of crossover but it was a sort of political thing that I was I wanted to speak to it was really really important to me that I said something new and original about Arendt to the community of Arendt scholars and political theorists, mostly in the US. Arendt, you know, there were some people working on Arendt in the UK, but there was never really a big Arendt co of scholars. People always blame Isaiah Berlin for that. Um, but, the, you know, all this brilliant work going on in Arendt in, in the US, and I wanted to say something new and original. And also, you know, and then the easy part was to sort of speak to, say something to IR about the importance of Arendt. I mean, you know, that was just, that was a door that was waiting to open. Um, and yeah, then, and that, so that was the context in which I wrote that first book and, you know. So how, um, I'm not going to act like this is like the, the before times or anything, but I mean, uh, I, I was I, I was going back through um, because I so this is the period of time all of all of the context that you're talking about here was also something that was really uh, viscerally and intellectually important in the and it felt to me in the United States, especially at Kansas where I was because Petraeus at that time before like in between um, the 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 sort of 0304 first stages of the of Operation Iraqi Freedom or the Iraq War and then when he comes in and sort of implements, you know, the, the surge and counterinsurgency, which um, you've, your second book is about um, the, uh, you know, that, that he, he's there at Leavenworth. And so that context is something that's shaping a lot of how, you know, I'm approaching my international relations courses, but then the Arendtian sort of influx in international relations was definitely something that I was assigning in my classes. So the, so Tony, uh, and John's edited volume, Hunter Rent and International Relations, I would assign it. And then I also assigned your 2006, remind me, it, the EJIR article on Rent and Strauss and the oh, live. The, like, review of International Studies. Oh, right. yes, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, Strauss lies in the war in Iraq. Oh, that's fantastic. So yeah. I, and I ended up, like, I kind of overshot the mark because I had undergrads that I assigned that to, and they were so excited that I think a couple of them emailed you. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, God, they're just great. And they, they just said, well, I'll just, you know, they're, you know, uh, Professor Owens is probably just like Professor Steele. I can just email her and, you know, whatever yeah, no, else. but yeah. they were so excited. I mean, it, it, it really struck. That, that's just an, I just use that as an example that, that, that your work and that topic and, and how that was all coming together was really resonating with our, with my students uh, at the University of Kansas, just in, in Lawrence, Kansas, in the center of the U.S., um, precisely because the Iraq war was, spinning out it had been spinning out of control for some time but was really uh spinning out of control at that period of time but what i wanted to do was to ask you how um back then uh because tony and john in their introduction or in their sort of acknowledgments are talking about the the contributors to this volume how they all came together in a couple of panels at an isa i think um, but how, how did they, how did people figure out, like nowadays it's so easy. I can just look back through, you know, people's Twitter bios 
and figure out what they're, you know, interested in and put together a panel yeah. or find reviewers or whatever, or I can just search old programs, you know, digitally on online. Um, but you, you contributed two fantastic chapters to this Hannah Arendt uh, and international relations volume, one, a biography on her and, or sort of a biographical sketch. It's also contextualizing as she's writing. And then uh, another one sort of uh, critiquing Habermasian uh, takes on, on sort of deliberative democracy and violence. Um, so I'm wondering how you got, like, did, did you, did, did they approach you? How did they find you? How did they know about this? Um, how did they put everybody together for, for that volume? And then because of that, it sounded to me like you, you, you were aware of an Arendtian sort of interest in the United States that wasn't as present in Britain. Yeah. I don't, remember how they got in touch with me I, I it may have been I mean you know somebody would have said oh you know there's somebody working on a rent and you know, doing a PhD in Aberyst I mean you know that Aberyst with tentacles was sort of wide then I mean and so it may, it may have been you'd have to ask them how they knew that I was how they gathered up together these sort of people who were working on on a rent I don't really remember I remember the conference I remember giving the papers at the panel at ISA, giving a paper at the panel at that ISA and um, meeting then Helen Kinsella, who was at that panel and who, you know, is also a great Arendt scholar as well. And, um, but yeah, there were a very small number of people working on Arendt in IR. Um, <laughs> and and none, none that I was aware of, apart from Helen in, in, in sort of IR in the US. And there was, you know, again, it was the political theorists um, I didn't know you were interested in Arendt. I mean, it's funny because Arendt is on the all under politics on political science undergraduate syllabi in the US. At some point, you can't do political science in the US without at some point encountering Arendt. And, you know, because IR is in political science, almost all um, political scientists have a fondness or dislike of Arendt because they've come encountered her and she's so all pervasive, you know, and as you know, and she's she is so. I mean, she's canonical, right? And she's so important. And, you know, and we've all, we've also just come out of sort of peak rent with before, you know, under Trump. Um, and, you know, that, yeah, we, I mean, it's interesting, I'm like, thinking about this, why I was drawn to her. And I, I, I think, and I'm going to, I suppose this is slightly autobiographical experience, but this might be going a bit too far, but I, I, I've been thinking a bit more. I mean, I was, she, I think I was drawn to her because she was one of the few women in the, in the theory canon who was, who was there at all. And, and, and the only one who was there, not as a feminist, not to represent sort of feminism and, 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 and gender. And it's not that I was not interested in feminism. Uh, I wasn't interested in her because she was not a feminist. Uh, I was, I was, you know, I was, feminist then I mean I mean through through my PhD I worked at a, a domestic violence shelter um but there was something and my work's become but my and my, my work has become more feminist over time but there was something about her and I think the older I get and I'm sort of more able better able and more interested in sort of reflecting on maybe the deeper sort of psychological even sort of psychoanalytic reasons why we are drawn to the things we're drawn to and why we develop the passions that we have. I think it was this sort of lone woman, again, venerated as one of the great political thinkers of the 20th century, because I was looking for a sort of strong woman intellectual figure that I just did not have or see when I was growing up. And um, 
And I think that, that yeah, there's some sort of trage tragedy to that because I, you know, my mum left school at 14 and I just didn't see this. She left school at 14 and, and you know, did not get to show the fact, which I've only recently learned, was that she was considered to be the, mem the, brainy member of the brainiest member of the family. I had just learned this a few weeks ago. My mum left school. She, she never got to, she was, she, you know, she had low paid jobs. She was married to these Irish men who just expected her to sort of, traditional Irish men expected her to kind of, you know, cook and clean and raise the children on her own without complaint. And, you know, I just didn't see what she was and who she was in that, in that intellectually. And so, I think that I somehow I I have idealized this figure of of of, of Hannah Arendt in that context. I I don't think there's there's sort of no relation between this sort of looking for that sort of role model and 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 this sort of fascination that I developed with with Arendt. And you know I think with all idealizations <laughs> there are, there are problems. So you know I mean I think. Certainly the last piece I've written on Arendt, and it may be the last thing I write on her, is, is a sort of self-critique of how, you know, I bracketed in my work on Arendt what I knew to be the most problematic thing about Arendt, which is her, I think we could say her anti-Black racism, which, which, you know, I thought, I mean, I was aware of, but was like, well, that's, it's not really related to what I'm trying to do with with, with Arendt, but actually, you know, it is, and it, it's sort of it's fundamental to to some of her greatest arguments and the work that I found most interesting about, you know, in of hers, so origins of totalitarianism, you know, the boomerang effect. I found that fascinating. The imperial origins of total war, but it's based on an account of imperialism that is just profoundly racist her working on revolution, you know, uh, not, you know, this revolutionary tradition in, in the United States, unable to see that, you know, Haitians as revolutionary subjects, just simply unable to do that, um, because of this, you know, public political social distinction, but also just this kind of high German kind of cultural uh, uh, hierarchies uh, between life and world and all these different concepts. And even, you know, most famously in, let less you know reflections on Little Rock and you know just the complete misreading of the political nature of the civil rights struggle and what education meant to African Americans. So um, I think you know so she's a she's a sort of I mean she's just a brilliant brilliant figure. Um, but I think of her now much more in terms of a kind of as a historical figure rather than as a source for critical political theory. Not that people cannot do that, but I just don't feel that I can do that anymore. I wouldn't really turn to her now. Maybe I would in the future. I don't know. Hope, but but at this at this time, I feel that um, you know that I couldn't use her that way anymore. So when did you feel like? uh you were or maybe maybe this isn't the right question to ask going back to what uh, uh professor edkins had told you that there's you know going to be these ir uh positions because there's a demand for it but um you were at oxford for four years after your uh postdoc at or three three and a half four years it looks like yeah. after your postdoc yeah. and then and then uh at, at queen mary 
uh, for another four years. And then you had the, the almost nine or 10 years at Sussex, which started to develop or maybe it already had it, but, but it was just reinforced its own identity as like a school where a lot of this uh, particular, you know, interests or whatever, or, or thinking uh, was, was really proliferating. And so I'm wondering how um, throughout that period of time, uh, your, your sense of um, security maybe isn't the right word, but your sense of, okay, you know, I've, I've published, uh, I'm publishing books, I'm, I'm, I'm getting awards, I'm doing it. So um, was it one of those things where uh, it's, it's, it's different in the UK Academy compared to the US Academy, because for us, the big bar is tenure. And that's when you can take a little bit of a breather, which of course, then immediately is followed by all this administrative work that that you then <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that you then get encouraged to to take yeah. up. Um, but I'm wondering, like for you, was it one of those things that once you know you were at Oxford for those few years, you felt like you were in a good groove, and then could go to Queen Mary, and then could go to um, uh, to Sussex, and so on, or 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 maybe you didn't think about it, like as throughout that period of time, maybe, maybe you just kept doing your work. Yeah, not consciously. I think in retrospect, I felt like I felt like that at, at Sussex. Um, and perhaps after the the fellowship at the Radcliffe Institute, which was, you know, which really, I mean, it's sort of, it's mech, I mean, you know, it's just heavenly. It, um, and I had that time, so I had the time there to sort of finish the draft of the of Economy of Force. Um, and uh I had to come back to uh and I had my second child and got another period of research leave off the back after that just to sort of <laughs> um catch up and I think then um yeah it was at Sussex and becoming yeah I became a I got my professorship in 2015 uh, and when Economy of Force came out, and I think that was that, I mean, you know, again, of course, you're right, not long after that, I became head chair of department, <laughs> head of department, um, which, you know, was, has its own, is its own separate thing. But then doing um, this, doing the, the project on women in the history of international thought and getting, getting a large project run and then taking on that role as a kind of convener of a project and, and collaboration. I've got like this sense now that I don't have to I realize I don't I can present the same material, uh, you know, more than once um, <laughs> that I can, um, you know, apply for grants and get them, you know, that that I, you know, that there's a sort of convening that's fun and that as people are responsive to that, that, that's, that, that was a period then, I think, from sort of post Radcliffe to 2015. And then to 2015 to the new project on on women's international thought 2017 to 2018 i think that's when i felt like yeah the sec i mean yeah so maybe security is the right word or yeah I, I, that as well as actually um becoming one of the editors of european journal of international relations it's at, at, at sussex you know with with beati Jan and, and pete newell um and i remember when that happened you know and it was sort of exciting and daunting but it takes other people outsiders to sort of just drop say one thing to you that you know sticks with you but I remember um like Cindy Weber said oh you you you'll now you'll now be gatekeepers you'll be intellectual gatekeepers and I thought what <laughs> what is that you know that to sort of think that you then had a sort of different kind of you you were you were no longer up and coming 
Mm-hmm. You know, you were, no, you, you were no longer just somebody who was sort of, you know, just making their way. But like at that point, you couldn't really say anymore that you had, you know, you were just sort of finding your way. Either you were like, I mean, we're all still finding our way, but you had to take a, you had a responsibility then. You know, there's just no two ways about it. And, and the question was then, like, what kind of professor are you going to be? What kind of editor are you going to be? What kind of, you know, head of department are you, are you going to be? And, you know, you have to then just sort of be that <laughs> as best you can. But there isn't anywhere else to go anymore. I mean, you know, it's not that there's anywhere else to go in that sense of, you know, things you might want to achieve, but that, you know, you are now, let's say, an academic woman in her 40s, um, <laughs> no longer um someone making their way in their 20s and 30s well i'm just thinking about it's i i didn't have any of the the sort of the big um opportunities yet in the mid 2010s uh for for that but there were still like moments that i i just remember i'm like oh gosh i'm we're no longer the youngest folks (laughs) in the room anymore there was a round table at like an isa northeast or an isa maybe both where it was just packed in the room. And I thought, why are there all these people in this room? This is, you know, it's just me and a few other folks that I've always worked with. Um, and I remember turning to Daniel Levine, uh, a real good buddy of mine uh, afterwards. And I said, did you, did you see the room? And he's like, yeah, it's, it's all these young people. And I said, well, that means Dan, that we're no longer the young people. <laughs> you know, there's, there's other people wanting that they're coming here that want to hear what we have to say, or at least they, you know, want to say something to us uh, in response. And then, yeah, there is that moment of, oh gosh, now I have to be a little bit more responsible <laughs> or conscientious yeah. or whatever. I don't know what it is, but, yeah. uh, and then the same kinds of things. And we become associate editors or editors of journals and heads of department or directors of grad studies or whatever. Yeah. And then you, you know, you not only then get old enough to sort of, psycho, <laughs> sort of psychoanalyze your intellectual choices, but also when, uh, realize, think in terms of generations and, and, you know, for the first time properly, where you, or certainly the generations that are coming, so that the sense in which I got as director of graduate studies before became before I was head of department of this that cohort, this cohort having a much stronger sense of their you know of their demands of as workers as laborers within institutions. I mean, you know, we, I was coming up. It was like, oh, you know, I'll do all this. I'll do this teaching as part of the apprenticeship of being a professor as a grad student and you know it was sort of part of the scholarship I don't think I got paid more I think I got paid I got paid less because other people were doing it because they didn't have funding but I had the funding and you know that was fine and now you know now the job market the sort of exploitation the level of precarity it's just completely different and that's one among many ways in which you feel I feel you know as part of a generation and you know that there are different generations and different demands being made on us rightly so as sort of uh you know people who have have institutional um have institutional power and influence and well and I mean like going going back to what you said you know uh 15-20 years ago when we're on the market um you know everybody I've interviewed of, of my generation anyway of our generation is you know, at least they they're they're cognizant enough to know that you know the experiences we had were were very fortunate, especially right before the global financial crisis, right before you know the austerity craze uh, when when all the jobs dried up and never came back, um, and then recognizing that 
this this generation of, of early career researchers is also having to do more and more work um, to try to compete for the less and less jobs that are out there. And then also going back to what you were talking about with the, the postdoc at USC, um, what a great and unique and, and maybe nowadays obsolete opportunity that was for, for you back then to be able to think about, well, maybe I don't want to turn my thesis into a one-to-one -one book. Maybe I want to step back and go in a different direction for my first book. I, I'm wondering if, you know, those opportunities would really be there or, or be there. And, you know, I mean, the, the opportunity to think, to actually just sit and think about what it is that you want to do rather than just doing it and just, you know, picking a lane and then going, going down there because you got to get something out because you got to get uh, on the market or whatever. I mean, that's, that's the contrast, right? And how much more professionalized they are. I mean, you know, I haven't sat on an appointment panel without somebody my age or older saying, I would never have gotten a job. At, Same. At, you know, Yep. Yeah, right. Um, the the sort of professionalization, the quality of the work. I mean, you know, I mean, it's not as if our, us in that position would not have been able to sort of reform us, you know, have been disciplined um, uh, and shaped into producing that, there, you know, if that was us there now. But but it is striking how much better, you know, <laughs> this generation is um, in terms of, you know, their professional presentation and trajectory and um, and the, the sort of difficulties and constraints. You're right. I mean, I doubt that very many people now would, would say they they could waste a postdoc year. I mean, again, I don't think it was necessarily wasted, but it, it felt like that in terms of what I ended up doing. Um, I ended up delaying and not producing, which I think was good. Um, I didn't rush out. I mean, I... Did, there was a time when I felt like I was rushing out a load of stuff that I wish I hadn't done. Um, there are a few pieces that are like, you know, I just wouldn't, I just wished I didn't do. I just said yes to too many things. That's the other thing you, when you now are on this stage, you just, I just say no mm -hmm. all the time now to things. Not that I'm continually being invited to do things, but you know, I get enough invitations to say, to know that I now need to say no to things. Well, so I wanted to, speaking of something that's taking up a, a lot of your time uh, that we're all benefiting from, I, I wanted to to re uh, return to the Lieberhum uh, funded project on women in the history of international thought that you mentioned. And I was uh, curious, um, a couple of things. First, how, how did it come about? How did um, you and uh, Professor Hutchings and Reitzler uh, get together on this? Uh, um, how did it, how did it sort of, what are the origins of it? And then it's, it's a fascinating project in the sense that there's not just, it's not going to be associated with just one article here or special issue there or edited volume. I mean, it is broad and it is vast and it is something that is, I think, structurally, you know, making an impact and going to make even more of an impact. And I'm a little bit biased too, but um, uh, because uh, I, I'm, I'm enjoying seeing that impact unfold, but uh, I'm just uh, curious as to, was there always, this is the U.S. Academy in me, right? Was there always that strategy of we're going to, we're going to cast a wide net here and really make an impact in a bunch of different venues? Um, so yeah, maybe. yeah. So, so, so the origins of the project are um, in an interdisciplinary workshop exploring the sort of neglected history of uh, women international thinkers put together by three historians, um, Katerina Riedsler, my colleague, then colleague at Sussex, and Tamsin Peach and Valeska Huber. So they organized a workshop in 2015. And because I had written this book on Hannah Arendt's international thought, they invited me. 
And it was an interdisciplinary, I mean, it was not just historians, but I was the only IR scholar. Um, I mean, I think that book is still the only monograph on a, on a woman in social thinker in, in IR. Um, and they in turn were inspired by the historian Glenda Sluger's kind of critique of women's neglect in, you know, the then and still burgeoning fields of global and international intellectual history. So it was really historians, you know, who, who sort of pointed out this. And it was really, I mean, you know, it was, it was so exciting because this was also, this was 2015, at the same time that Bob Vitalis's White World Order, Black Power Politics came out. So this sort of this moment of rethinking disciplinary history in a properly historical archival way. And in that book, you know, he has this discussion of Merce Tate, um, which is the, the which is the one of the few, if not if only IR studies, his, archivally based studies of a woman international thinker. And that also in 2015 was this book that came out called um, Toward an Intellectual History of Black Women that was edit, edited by you know, a kind of four-person team, Bay, Griffin, Jones, and Savage. And Barbara Savage also had a chapter on Ms. Tate in that book. I mean, that was not exclusively focused on international thinking. So this was the context for this conversation. It's really exciting 2015 conversation that then Katerina and I, you know, and, you know, again, and the historiographical impetus for it is just so obvious. I mean, you know, yet again, IR has just been so neglectful, right, of its own intellectual and disciplinary past I mean I was at the time I was sort of saying you know this work has to be done by an historian you know this you know we just need proper you know recovery historical recovery and analysis project so Katerina and I carried on discussing these things and I had because I had done that Radcliffe year I had access to this money for an quite a lot of money for an exploratory seminar which um Katerina, David Armitage, the Harvard intellectual historian, and I put together in, by then it was 2018, we delayed a little bit because Katerina was on maternity leave, and um, we brought together, again, another interdisciplinary field, bringing in more IR people at this point, um, including Kim Hutchings, and we, that was the sort of workshop where we were just, where we put together the papers for the, or first workshop, the papers for the um, edited volume that Katerina and I published. And, you know, it was in the run up to that, it was just clear that there was scope for a kind of large scale interdisciplinary collaborative project. And so I think it began that as that, and that was the sort of vision that we would, it would need to have, we'd need to bring in, we'd need historians, historical IR people, feminist political theorists, you know, so in which Kim, you know, that's sort of Kim's philosophy, feminist philosophy is sort of Kim's background. I mean, she's a real interdisciplinary scholar. I mean, you know, she crosses IR political theory philosophy. Um, to basically write women back into the histories of international thought. I mean, but even, and even though it was a kind of big project, it's still, I mean, we're really conscious of its limitations. It's just, Anglo, I mean, it's Anglo-American and it's 20th century. So, you know, we, we have neglect, we're just focusing on this. I mean, core, you know, the core period and locations for, for you know, IR, but, you know, not, not in any way not even remotely close to being kind of um, properly global um, or sort of tra trans-historic. I mean, you know, there, there'll be much more richer works that, to come out of it. Um, and also, but I just want to mention also the, you know, the postdoc, we had the historian, um, Sarah Dunstan, our postdoc on the project, who's done really fascinating work on creating an oral history archive and working with us on the anthology and our doctoral researcher, Joe Wood, 
doing a disciplinary history of the US context. So, and then I'm working on a monograph now too, so that the work will continue. And, and I have to say, I hope we can say after the conference we had in London recently, um, that there is now a field of women's, in, you know, a field of the history of women's international thinking, cross-disciplinary field now, where there's a kind of cross-disciplinary conversation um, of recovery and analysis. Um, which will hopefully be um, realized in a special issue of a journal that you are familiar with, Global Studies Quarterly. So that's um, wonderful and thank you for that. And the final thing I mentioned is that we did, um, and this is what well, was really exciting for me was to collaborate on a public exhibition, which opened at the public at the uh, same time as the conference and is, is open and if anybody's in London, um, the LSE Library has an exhibition space, a, a public exhibition space. Um, and we have a, a you know an exhibition of, of um, photographs and papers, documents, letters, all kinds of things um, that we curated, co-curated together with the, in, you know in the project that will be running in through September. And there's a great website and there's an audio guide for people who are visually impaired. Um, and that's been wonderful to sort of collaborate with you know um, professionals curating you know how to do that and get gather all the stuff together and it's been wonderful so can i ask um maybe you don't want to tell me but who runs the twitter account for the project because <laughs> i love it i love it because it's it's like my one-stop shop where i can just like any recent development i can just pop that up and, and um up. Uh, uh we all do but i'm mostly doing it okay okay yeah <laughs> All right. No, it's it's fantastic, and I and the um, the links to the public exhibit. I'll put it in my Twitter thread um, when when uh, I announce this wonderful conversation that we had. But what I love about all of these different venues and manifestations and outputs, uh, and I'm I'm doing shock quotes, folks uh, that are just listening to this podcast right now, because I, I I'm I'm you know I can't think of a better word for it. There's probably a better word than outputs, but. But what I love about that is that you can you can assign in a bunch of different classes, at least here in the U.S. Academy, uh, different pieces depending on what it is. So like I taught our kind of core IR theory seminar for our grad students last fall um, and assigned uh, is it your and uh, uh, Kim's uh, APSR article. Yeah. Very first week. Right. I mean, so, you know, that's where we kind of do the history and the historiography of international relations. Well, you just throw that right in there um, as the first reading and say, <laughs> pump the brakes. You know, this is this, you know, we wouldn't have had this five years ago on the syllabus, but now we do. And um, along with Vitalis's work or Lyra and Hobson and Cavarlo's work, you know, all, all of these re rethinkings of the especially the racialized uh, problematic ways of, of doing the historiography of, of IR as well. Um, so where do you, when do you, how do you approach writing? <laughs> uh, Has it changed maybe, over the years? Yeah. Probably. I suspect as a student, uh, I was, I wrote, um, and could write all day. I, I increasingly feel feel like I, you know, and for some years now, I've understood that I write best in the morning, and that you know that is really I, you know, you just have to protect that morning time. Trying to leave like reading and emails and admin, even teaching, if possible, to to the afternoon. Um, 
I, you know, for a while I was working in the art, you know, not necessarily writing, but working out, you know, in the evening after the children went to bed when they were much younger. I don't do that so much now. I now realize, you know, I really do need to like stop and switch off and then, you know, not, not do any work in the evenings. Um, I have, and I was, I have, uh, I don't know where I found this, where, who gave it to me or where I came across it, whether I printed it. It's in, a, it's, it's on American size paper. We have different size paper. Um, then, so I know that it was somehow we're in the U S but, um, on my wall in my study by my desk at home, I have, uh, Henry Miller's miscellaneous work schedule from 1932 to 1933 with 11 commandments on it. And there are four that I really follow, try to follow. Um, the first is uh, write first and always, which I've already mentioned, which I just do anyway, because like my, that's when I can, you know, that that paragraph you were struggling with yesterday afternoon, it's just done first thing the next morning. Um, and then there's when you can't create work, which actually I find really helpful when I've run out of creating writing, creative writing steam that I get on with accepting archives or note taking or sorting out references or whatever. You know, and that there's a difference between being creative and, and being and, and kind of working and that that's OK. And, you know, you need to then maximize the time you can be creative and then just get on with the rest of it when you can't and not be feel bad about that. Um, the other is cement a little every day rather than add new fertilizer, says Henry Miller. So to me, that's part of the same thing. It's like, you know, I can it's easy. I can just add in more like quotes or more literatures or whatever but that's actually that's you know I need to that's fertilizer but I have to cement like do the writing like write that up or write write on the notes and you know literatures you fertilized previously um so I tried it yeah I do that again that's part of my writing in the morning and the final one is work on one thing at a time until it's finished and I've mostly been able to do that now again that's one of the other benefits of then you know being older and professor and you know, I just say no, like I'm very strict now. I, I mean, I'm not doing anything if it's not now related to the monograph or the, or the, or the project, this project that I'm doing, I'm just not doing, I can't do it um, and then do justice to this. I mean, COVID is partly a, you know, the effect of that and having kids, you just, you know, you just have to be death disciplined. I think that's just good practice anyway. I mean, that's just how you get into deep, more, you know, deeper into the project instead of saying yes to sort of, this edited volume and that edited volume and I did that a lot when I'm coming after my first book between between my rent book and economy of force I said like, that's what the period when I think I was saying yes to too many things um well so, and, um, yeah. <laughs> sorry this is this is just a sidebar as like a kid that grew up in Iowa when you mentioned fertilizer it's like that we could have gone into a different sort of metaphor <laughs> there for for what I've what I think about when I think about how I've ruined a lot of um a lot of good uh papers or whatever by putting too much into it but yeah. um but I I did want to ask it I mean you're a parent uh as well and so you know when um, you mentioned that you were able to, for a little bit of time, uh, when your children were younger, it sounds like you, you were working a little bit later, but now it's just, it's, you don't do that anymore. It's gotta be in the morning and, and, uh, for the writing itself, that is, um, because it, is that just one of those things where you, you just consciously want to shut everything down so that you can, you know, not, not be thinking about writing or work or whatever in the evenings or. Yeah, I think it was more to then, you know, the demands that they make on you when they're really young mean that, you know, you just are what with them or 
trying to maintain your professional <laughs> working life, right? So, uh, so you, you, you have to carry on doing a bit of work after they go to bed when they, because they go to bed, you can, I'm, you know, I used to be able to get my daughters to go to bed at seven or half past seven in the evening. And you could, you know, you could get, you know, you could do an hour or two of emailing after that. And, they, necessarily... and they'd stay asleep like the whole. They would stay asleep till like six or seven. Oh, yeah, that's were... awesome. Yeah. They were good sleepers. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. So my, now, my... Now, my... you know, now they, they're like, you know, now they're like nine o'clock or whatever. So yeah. 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 You know, but... My son was um, was a really good sleeper. There was one summer where I revised my my second book, um, where he just it's like he'd, he'd always take that afternoon nap and then would sleep through the night. And I, I just turned out the revisions. It was great. Um, and then yet we'd still get that fun time in the mornings to you know do whatever yeah. it is that that we were going to do. But my our my, our daughter like when uh. uh it was one month before I defended the dissertation that she was born. And, and that was great. That whole summer staying home with her. I was the one that stayed home with her, but you know, I had to write a lot of emails, uh, uh, you know, type it with, with just my right hand. Cause I was always bouncing her with the, with the left, but as they got older, yeah, the, the time frame in terms of when you're needed. Uh, yeah. when, yeah. It's that, but it's also just not sustainable. I mean, you know, when right. survive, I mean, you know, that's sort of survival mode and, you you know you have to just sort of you know keep going and coping and so that's what you do but um i yeah i wouldn't want to live like that you know that's not how <laughs> one should live yeah really. long, it's not a sustainable <laughs> strategy yeah. right well so what do you what do you do to to decompress or recharge or whatever do you go for walks do you do you still play you, do you still play football no um, oh god no no um, I think I would do myself a terrible injury. I think the, actually the last time I played football, I think it was actually, I made a brief appearance at a Sussex IR um, sort of lunchtime football match. I think it was the IR people versus um, faculty versus graduate students, or was it the IR people versus the anthropologists? And I, I, I knew I was heading for an injury. I mean, there was no, I could not, not try to relive the good old days and uh yeah i i didn't de develop a serious injury in that moment but i in that let's say appearance but i did not i knew that that was coming and i sort of just uh i wouldn't say graciously but i withdrew from from uh, i retired at that point um so no 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 uh <laughs> no i you know yeah i'm a, a huge walker i mean i live on the south coast of england um near Brighton I'm mean, in Brighton uh 10 minutes from the beach um so I love I mean, this beautiful coastal and country walks here I love um walking here I, every every winter I I resolve to toughen myself up by the summer and go swimming um sea swimming I really I would love to be one of these people who goes you know got up at 6 a.m and sort of went down to the beach in their wetsuit and sort of swam in the sea and then you know, came home and had a wonderful, you know, got on with my day after having done that. I, I, I'm a real fair weather swimmer. So I go to the pool, indoor pool and, and, and do that. Uh, I, <laughs> in my future, I imagine I really would love to be one of these sort of ladies who goes to the spa and sort of get goes from goes between the sort of jacuzzi and the pool and then, you know, to the bar and, you know, to the pool and then to lunch with my friends and sisters. I sort of do that once once or twice a year. Um, I, I, I think, you know, I, well, I'll, when I'm retired, if I can do that in my, you know, twice, once or twice a week, I would be, <laughs> I would be really happy. Um, you know, yeah, dinners, friends, 
dinners, drinks with friends, that kind of thing. Uh, hanging out with the girls, watching them do Taekwondo. You know, I was uh, really, really into that when I was younger. And so they're not into soccer. My youngest was really into football for a while and I was so thrilled. Um, but she sort of got, she's now they're both into Taekwondo. Did you ever coach? Uh, either of them uh, in like sports or anything like that? Uh, <laughs> coach might be a bit generous. I, I help them out <laughs> because it's just, the, it's exactly the same as I did. I did Taekwondo and, and well, I did karate when I was really young and I got to the belt before black, but um, got interested in other things and dropped, stopped that. And then I went back to it in LA and then in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts and trained with the Korean, you know, MIT students, black belts and they are doing my girls are doing exactly the same you know move, you know it's all the, the the sort of warm-up everything is exactly the same it's the same for the international taekwondo federation so that is wonderful and it's also in uh to make it even more nostalgic it's it's they, they take it in a catholic hall church hall so there's a sort of jesus on the cross like where they do so the first time i went in there i just thought i was going to like die of kind of you know <laughs> nostalgia um so i like to do that with them i wouldn't i wouldn't say i'm coaching them but they are i'm, I'm helping them a little bit that's at some point i'll be you know they'll go beyond where i was but well i was a um my daughter, when so she was always in Catholic schools uh, when when we were at Lawrence, and then when we moved out here, and she actually she had the easiest transition of any of us uh, moving here to Utah. Um, but uh, eventually, they didn't have like a, a coach for her basketball team, her grades basketball, the girls basketball team, CYO Catholic youth, Catholic Youth Organization basketball. So I coached them for four or five years, and it's weird because I I. Um, you you've attended it too, I think. The the ISC Northeast Methods uh, Critical Methodologies Workshop, haven't no, you? No, I haven't actually. No. Oh, okay. I, I guess I thought you were one of the speakers for that one one year, but you, you've attended the Northeast, I know. Um, yeah, one time. Yeah, yeah. I have attended the ISC Northeast, but I did not go to one to the methods um, graduate methods. Okay, well, because I when I was thinking back to when you were talking about Hayward Alker, especially in two thousand four, um, I was that was right around the time that you know some of the quality research methods camps were popping up in in the US and uh and Hayward's kind of um uh was kind of spearheading the more critical methodologies sort of uh that that was you know complementing but also in some tension with the other quality the more positive as qualitative research methods um but in any case I've, I've I've attended the the methods uh the critical methodologies workshop interpretive methods workshop uh, a couple of times and been a speaker and one time I was really into space and how we think about space and how we think about like observing space and you know the way in which like landscapes work upon us that kind of stuff for one of my um one of my book projects and so that's what I was talking to the students that were there about and they're like where did you get this idea and I said coaching my daughter's basketball team when they were like 10 and 11 years old because they're otherwise clumped up. So I would just put them into different spaces and then they would play great, right? Because I, I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew that they were just too clumped together. And so, um, and then they kind of looked at me like, that's a little bit strange, but whatever, so. <laughs> what do you think of your work? What's that? What do your kids think of your work? Oh, I was gonna ask the same thing to you. So, um, my my daughter thought it was kind of cool for a little while, but now she's just, you know, she's a teenager. She's 17, right? So yeah. she's just like, she's in her world and, you know, um, she's going to, she wants to come to this 
to, to the U of U. Um, but you know, she, just because it's, you know, something comfortable for her, cause I would bring them here during the pandemic and they'd take their online classes while I would teach my online classes here at the offices. My son, um, uh, will go on. I've tweeted about this a little bit. So I'll like a lot of time, but this is the other thing about being an academic, right? Is that we have the flexible schedules. So if they have like the field trips or whatever, and they need a volunteer, I can chaperone. So I usually chaperone his field trips. And because we, I have a minivan, we'll take some of the kids. And so there was one time where I showed up for the field trip and, uh, each, child of the chaperone is supposed to introduce their parent and so you know of course the gender dynamic especially here in utah you know each each kid is like saying well this is my mom you know sharon she does the, yeah or she she's you know going to be driving this car this is my mom uh, amy she's driving this car and then my joe says uh, this is my dad professor brent jamison Steele of the university of utah <laughs> chair of the department <laughs> So then I had all these kids that wanted to ride in our, you know, because um, he looks me up on, he like Googles my name and everything. And so like, the, he'll tell the other kids, oh, look, my dad's on, you know, right. he's on these websites. So he's famous. Yeah. That's not much of a bar anymore, buddy. But how about yeah. yours? What, what did they, they, were, they just, they, um, they were very, when I was head chair of the department, head of the department, they, they loved that because they thought that, that meant I was the boss. And <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That was great for them. And so then when I was no longer head of department, they wanted to know if I wasn't the boss anymore. And then I was like, well, you know, I'm sort of, you know, we're all sort of bosses of ourselves. I mean, you know, you don't really, you know. And then, um, but they think when I talk about the projects I'm doing, they know they know Hannah Arendt's name. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the new project, they, they just think the books are boring. Like, and I show that, you know, if I say, oh, like this here, look, it's this book, they just have no interest whatsoever. And in fact, perform, you know, wonderful sort of you know stage hammy you know i'm dying of boredom uh physical <laughs> reactions um so i'm hoping i really hope that that sort of goes and that's just a sort of that's just their age it's certainly my yeah my older daughter uh and that that when she's older she'll sort of think this work is you know had some merit and wasn't completely boring well, and they, I mean, their names are in there, right? Because you put them in the acknowledgements, I would imagine, right? Or yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, even so, that. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, they're okay. Yes, that's right. So that's, they're happy to see that. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, but in terms of the rest of the content, they have absolutely no interest whatsoever. Yeah. So well, far. <laughs> well, Professor Patricia Owens, thanks so much for joining the Hayseed Scholar podcast. Thank you. It's been wonderful. All right, that was my conversation with Professor Patricia Owens. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed having that conversation with Professor Owens. And I know that I will be looking forward to more of the work that's produced, especially in this Women in the History of International Thought project. She also mentioned that she's pursuing a monograph on her own uh, on this, and so I'm really uh, excited to see what else comes out of that project. I hope you're all doing well. A uh, couple quick updates for me. As many of you know, I got stuck in Britain for about four or five days after going there for two weeks to give some talks and um, had, had a great time connecting with folks that I hadn't seen in some cases in years. Uh, and then the day before I was supposed to fly out, I took a test uh, at Heathrow Airport and it came back positive even though I was not symptomatic. 
I had gotten my second booster two weeks before going there. I had worn my N95 in all uh, indoor spaces. Uh, during the workshops that I was at or the talks I was at, I was always by open windows, but there's just so much of, um, and over there, I think at that time, it was probably BA4, BA5 circulating in Britain that I, and, you know, I, I was the I was about the only one wearing in the transcontinental flight a mask, and so I ended up getting COVID, and I was surprised because I didn't have any symptoms, although then the night after I tested positive, I did have some very, very mild symptoms, but I felt good enough to be able to, in the days that followed, um, kind of just get up, put my mask on, walk out my hotel. The weather was actually great at that time in England and in London, and so I'd just find a different neighborhood around Heathrow and just take a little walk. There was a huge outpouring of support and and offers of assistance from the British-based academics that I know, especially the ones that were and live right around London, which was so kind. Um, I didn't take any of them up on their offers because I was still very nervous about being contagious uh, towards anyone. Um, but walking outside, I, I wasn't going to be in contact with anyone. And so I was able to take some walks each day, come back at room service, uh, or pick up uh, something with a mask on from the hotel lobby, and then uh, just get work done each night and each morning. And then after six days, I tested negative, and I flew back. And um, and then in about about a month ago now, uh, on June 30th, I had my last day as department chair, a role I've been in for the Department of Political Science here at the University of Utah for three years. And it ended as much of it had been. It was still a lot of things to do, a lot of stuff to attend to. It didn't really just fade away. It just kind of was a lot of work until the very end. And so I was in the Midwest in Iowa visiting my family, getting to see my parents, my brother and his family, my nephews uh, and their um, friends uh, as well. And so, and get to see some old friends. And so it was a nice time to kind of wind down my time as a department chair at the University of Utah Political Science Department. And now I'm starting kind of a year of not not, not teaching, and I'm getting back into a little bit of a groove with research. It's so hot uh, during the days that I have to get up early and walk chase pups, uh, but Joe and I, and sometimes Annabelle, my, my children, and I I usually find something each day to do. Joe and I will go out uh, golfing uh, once a week. Uh, I take them to the gym with me. And so I'm kind of trying to get back into the groove a little bit. And these conversations, I think, help. So I will be endeavoring to put these out a little bit more frequently the rest of the summer and into the fall uh, for those of us in the Northern Hemisphere or the rest of the winter and the spring for those of you that are in the Southern Hemisphere. And in the meantime, I hope you're all doing well. Uh, I'll be attending the ISA Regionals this fall, uh, the ISA West, the ISA Midwest, and the ISA Northeast. At the very least, I may also attend the ISA South. So if any of you that listen to this podcast are there, please uh, hit me up uh, so we can meet for a coffee, catch up, maybe take a selfie and tweet it out. Um, But in the meantime, I hope everyone's doing well. I hope you're taking care of yourselves. And uh, until next time, cheers.